Today we are going to be looking at a period of time in the life of, of the man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a cupbearer for the great Persian king, a king named Artaxerxes. Fun name to say. Artaxerxes. Cupbearers were among some of the most trusted of the king's servants because the job of a cupbearer was to taste the wine before the king drank it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So, great job. You think your job's bad? And back in that day, it was not an uncommon thing for people to try to poison the king. And that's why they had cupbearers. Because there was probably a whole lot more cupbearers that died than there were kings that died. Culture and protocol of the day required that any servant that came into the, the presence of the king had to have a cheerful disposition. And when I say required, it meant that any change in countenance other than cheerful could be viewed as suspicious and it could very possibly result in death. That would keep a smile on your face at work, won't it? In Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 3, we read that even though Nehemiah was supposed to maintain a cheerful countenance, because he was overwhelmed with sadness over the condition of his home city of Jerusalem, he couldn't hide his feelings. This is in spite of knowing that it could get him killed. The king noticed this and asked Nehemiah why his face was so sad. He said, since you're not sick, that look can only be sadness of heart. And Nehemiah had to be terrified at this point. So the first thing out of his mouth was, long live the king. Good answer. And he followed it up with the statement that told of his sadness. He said, how can I be happy when the city of my ancestors lies in ruins and the gates and walls have been destroyed? If we go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, we can see the source of Nehemiah's sadness. Here we read that some of the Israelites who had been captive in Babylon for 70 years had been allowed to return to Jerusalem. And several years, possibly up to 50 years, has now passed since they were released to go home. And now some of them had made their way back to Babylon. When they returned, they told stories of the deplorable conditions of the wall that used to surround Jerusalem. Nehemiah 1.4 tells Nehemiah's reaction when he heard the stories. Let's read that. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The once great city of Jerusalem now lay in ruins and had been that way for decades since the time of its defeat by the Babylonians. Back to the scene where we see Nehemiah voicing his grief over these things to the king. When the king hears what is tormenting Nehemiah, he says, what is it that you want? And before he answers, Nehemiah prays and then he responds. Of all the things the king could have said after Nehemiah spoke, the king simply asked this. How long will it take for you to do that, and when will you be back? That's a pretty amazing conversation at this point, but it gets better. Remember, Nehemiah is a servant. 
He is a slave who had been defeated and taken captive by the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. So basically at this point, the Israelites were nothing more than hand-me-down slaves. Nehemiah writes of this account in verse 6. He said, it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. In other words, the king asked me how long I'm going to be gone, and I told him. But Nehemiah doesn't stop there. He goes on and asks the king, he said, would you write letters to all the governors between here and Jerusalem and tell them to leave us alone while we're coming through their, their land? Since he's on a roll, he just keeps going. He continues. He says, well, while we're at it, could you write a letter to that guy Asaph, the guy who takes care of the forest, and tell him to give us timber for the beams of the gates and for use in the building of the wall and the residence where I'm going to live when I get there. What have we got to lose? The king granted all of Nehemiah's requests. And Nehemiah knew why all these things were granted because at the end of verse 8, he wrote, because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my request. Wow. All of these things that are now happening weren't because of the goodness of the king. They weren't even about the goodness of Nehemiah. All that was happening in Nehemiah's life was because of the goodness of God, as Nehemiah said, the gracious hand of God was upon me. So many times we become discouraged when we don't see how a situation can possibly work out. Or we feel like God won't do that for me. God won't help me with that because I don't deserve it. And as far as that last part is concerned, you would be right. We don't deserve it. But God doesn't do things for us because we deserve it. He provides for us because he is a good God. He always keeps his promises, and he can make a way even when we can't see a way. In Nehemiah's situation, we see that God moved on the heart of a king to show favor to a servant not just to allow him to leave his job for a little while and come back, but gave him a guarantee of safe passage, the resources to get the job done, and then says, so, Nehemiah, when, when do you think you'll be back? No rush, just, just wondering when you'll be back. So I ask you today, if God can do all of that, and he can, then why do we worry about him taking care of our needs? He hasn't changed. He's still God. If we have a need, we can go to God for that need. He promises to hear our prayer and be assured he is more than able to do whatever we would ask. Look at Ephesians, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask, this next part, or imagine. Not just what we can ask, but more than we could even imagine, according to his power, is that is at work within us. James 4.2 is quite, quite clear that we don't have because we don't ask of God. We need to understand that because we can go to God and ask of him and know that he will supply our needs doesn't make him some kind of a spiritual Santa Claus. It doesn't make him some type of a supernatural ATM. And just because we feel like because we go to him, he has to do it our way. No, not at all. But he does want us to come to him with our needs. 
But as we've talked about it so many times, we need to make sure that what we are asking for God's, that we are asking for God's will to be done. Make sure that what we're asking lines up with what biblical principles we are, are, are living under as Christians. Because if it doesn't, then God certainly is not going to give us something that will cause us harm or that goes against his nature. That means our heart and our motives have to be in line with the will of God when we ask for something. Yes, James 4.2 says you do not have because you do not ask of God. But look what the next part of that verse says. It says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Contrary to what some preachers would tell you, just because we tell God we want a new Mercedes or a new Bentley, it doesn't mean when we get home that he's required to have one in the garage for us. That's not the way it works. If it was God's will for you to have one, then yeah. I don't know that that's really God's will for anybody to have a new Bentley, but that's neither here nor there. What we have to be careful of is that when we ask, that we're asking, God, if this is your will, it doesn't matter what it is. God, if this is your will, then this is what I need, or this is what I would like to see. This is what I would like to happen, if it's your will. If it's not God's will, why would we want it to happen anyway? That means we're going to be all out on our own, out of the will of God. So Nehemiah's heart was right. He had prayed and he fasted. He was asking for the, the king for something that was completely in line with the God, will of God. In fact, what he was asking for had already been prophesied of. The return of the Israelites to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the walls and the gates of the city had all been told as God's will. And now it was happening in God's timing exactly the way that God said it would as surely as God had said that the people would be taken captive and be taken into Babylon, God told them that that city would be restored. And now that was happening as well. And it was happening in a way that no one could have ever imagined. I'm sure just the part about letting, letting them go back to Jerusalem, that seemed miraculous. Nehemiah, who has a trusted job here as this cupbearer, could I get a couple weeks off work? And actually, it's a lot longer than that. But could I get a few months off work so I could go do this? That was amazing. But God didn't just do that. He provided safe passage. He provided the means to do everything that needed to be done because it was his will. We need to pray that his will be done because anything we ask outside of God's will, it's probably not going to work out well anyway. Give it to him. Let him handle it his way. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. If I don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now, why would I prefer that God do it my way over his way when he knows it's going to happen a thousand years from now? We have to trust him. Nehemiah 2.12. 
tells us that when Nehemiah returned back to Jerusalem, he's back in Jerusalem and he's gone to inspect the walls, he didn't really call attention to what he was doing. So he started his inspection at night, and even then he only took just a handful of men with him. And we see later that there would be great resistance to his plans, so he decided ahead of time not to tell everybody just yet what he had in mind. As we continue to read through Nehemiah chapter 2, we see that Nehemiah did not go around the whole city, but instead at this point he just went out and viewed the southern portion of the walls that were broken down. He continued his inspection, riding his little donkey around the, the broken down city walls till he came to a place where the rubble in front of him was totally impassable. He could go no further. Nehemiah had seen what he needed to see. So he turned around and quietly re-entered the city through the original gate from which he had left. Nehemiah had seen what needed to be done, and now it was time to get to work. So he called a meeting. Biblical historians tell us that at this point, more than 130 years had passed since Nebuchadnezzar had completely destroyed the city walls of Jerusalem. And after 130 years, it was a complete disaster. In verse 17, this is what Nehemiah tells the people. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I'm sure at this point the people probably nodded their heads because they too saw the sorry state that Jerusalem was in. They knew that without walls for protection, they would be an easy target for an enemy attack. The rubble that lay around them served as a shameful testimony to all they had lost because of disobedience to God. And now Nehemiah tells the people, it's time to put Jerusalem back to its proper state. It was time for the city to stop being an embarrassment to its people. Now, keep in mind, some of the people who had already turn, returned to Babylon had tried to rebuild before, but there was always something that came up. Usually it was the neighbors that, that went to the king to get construction stopped. And then as soon as there was any resistance, the Israelites would just stop working, throw up their hands and say, nope, not doing it. The, neighboring, the neighbors knew that if the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, then once again, Jerusalem would become a mighty city as it had been in the past. So they continually whined to the king, and in the past it had always been easy to get construction stopped. So although the people looked at Nehemiah with a certain amount of hope and concern and shook their heads, in their minds they were probably thinking to themselves, doesn't he know that we tried to do this in the past? Only to have everything stopped? As sad as it appeared to be, it seems that the people had come to a place of accepting that Jerusalem was lost forever. In response to their fears, Nehemiah told them about the conversation he had with the king. And he told them everything that God had provided. And when the people heard this, they rejoiced. They immediately sided with Nehemiah and replied, let's get started. Let's start rebuilding. While that sounds great, and it was, let's not forget that many of these same people to whom Nehemiah was speaking to 
had been released from Babylon several years prior to Nehemiah even showing up, some of them up to 50 years prior. And here's what I want us to grasp. That means there were people there who had been living in Jerusalem for decades just the way it was with its broken down walls and gates. Yeah, they had tried, kind of tried a few times to rebuild the walls, but something always happened. So at some point, they just stopped trying. And now it seemed that they reached the place where they decided just to live in the rubble. In spite of God's promises, it seems they had reached the place of saying, why bother? Sometimes we might feel God leading us to make some changes in our own lives. Maybe there are things that need to be fixed, things that need to be replaced, just like the walls of Jerusalem. Maybe you've tried to fix them on your own in the past, but something always came up, and after a while, you too found yourself saying, why bother? Even though you knew God had something better for you, you became content living in the rubble of what had become of your life instead of living in the what could be of what God wanted for your life. Let me tell you today, God does not want you to live in the rubble of your past. He wants us to live in the place where he wants us to be. The place where we are living a life that is obedient to the word of God and where we are doing the things that he has called us to do. That is where God wants us to be living. Not in the rubble of what we used to be. Let's go back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah had gotten political support, and now he had rallied the people to rebuild the walls. But the most important factor of all is this, that God's hand was upon it. If God's hand would not have been on it, they would have not accomplished any more this time than they had done in the past. From the very beginning, Nehemiah had placed everything in God's hands. Remember, going back to the very beginning of what we talked about, he had fasted and he had prayed before he even went to the king. He had asked God for guidance and direction for what needed to be done. He had asked God to give him the words to speak when he came before the king. Oh, how much we could accomplish if we would spend some time fasting and praying, asking God for guidance for what needs to be done. Lord, what is your will in my life? Asking God to give us the words to speak when he calls us to speak. And most importantly, Nehemiah had remained faithful to God through all of the things he had gone through. Nehemiah was able to do these things because he knew where his help came from. Of course, once the building was resumed, the neighbors came back just like they always had done, trying to discourage the Israelites. Look at Nehemiah 2, 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Amorite official, and Gisham the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is that you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. 
You see, the neighbors didn't know that God had caused the king to find favor with Nehemiah and the people. And because they didn't know that, they came around and started making threats. Nehemiah wrote that when they came around and mocked and ridiculed those who were building walls, they, they made statements like, are you rebelling against the king? Remember, they were saying this because in the past, all they had to do when they saw people start was to write a letter to the king. The king would issue an, an edict back and say, stop building those walls. But this time, because of Nehemiah's faithfulness, he had found favor with God. So now the Israelites not only had the king's permission, they had his blessing. They had his support. These neighbors tried to stop the progress of the rebuilding the walls. They schemed. They conspired. They made fun. This time, it didn't stop the Israelites from going forward to what finished what God had promised would happen. And I will tell you, you can be assured, when you decide to rebuild your spiritual life to the place where God wants it to be, there will be detractors. There will be naysayers. There will be schemers. There will be those who will say, yeah, they got saved. Yeah, they're working for the Lord for now. It won't last. I give them uh, three months or less. They'll be back, right back where they were. Let me tell you this. It doesn't have to be that way. So build it anyway. If we are following as God leads, we shouldn't care what anybody says. Amen. It's the truth anyway. I think I'm going to preach this sermon again next Sunday. Nehemiah's response to the detractors was simple and to the point. Go away. That wasn't his exact words. Actually, his words was his faith and trust in God was such that he looked at them and said, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic, historic right to it. So in other words, go away. Leave me alone. The higher the wall got, the more opposition there was to it. The talking and the mocking stopped, and the threats began. And the Israelites started to get scared, and they started saying things like, we're tired, and there's too much rubble. We can't do this. The enemies are going to kill us, and just on and on and on with reasons why they couldn't do this. After all that God had done, after the favor that he had shown them, as soon as difficulty showed up, they started looking at the circumstances instead of looking at God. And here's what Nehemiah did. First of all, let me tell you what he didn't do. He didn't say, okay, let's quit. Instead, he said this, Nehemiah 4, verses 13 and 14. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. He set up a defense. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. From that day on, 
we read on and we see that while half of the men worked, the other half stood guard. Those who carried materials, they carried their, their work. They carried bags of mulch in this hand, and they carried a weapon in this hand. That was for the guys who were here yesterday. They carried the lumber. They carried the bricks, whatever they were carrying. They carried that, but in this hand, they had a weapon. Each of the builders wore a sword on their side as they worked. And with the leadership of Nehemiah, they stood firm in the task that was before them. They refused to be discouraged this time. Because they were willing to fight for what God had promised them. They weren't going to tuck tail and run this time. God had brought them this far, and they weren't going to say, well, it got too hard, so I'm just going to quit. And I will tell you, at this point, it would have been easy to fall back into the too familiar pattern of behavior of the previous 50-plus years, saying things like, this is too hard. It's not worth it. There's too many detractors. There's too many distractions. You know, I, I'm looking at this now, and, and it's pretty bad, but if this is where I'm destined to be in this pile of rubble with a broken-down version of what used to be in my face, then I guess I can live with it. That's not what Nehemiah did. He knew it would be difficult, but he did not allow himself to be discouraged because Nehemiah knew that he was doing what God told him to do, where he told him to do it, and in the timing in which he told him to do it. The reason Nehemiah was able to lead the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem when no one else could do it was simply that he trusted God. He knew that he had been faithful to God. He knew that God had shown favor up until now, and because of that, he refused to be discouraged. God has placed on each one of us as Christians a ministry to accomplish. It might not be a, a ministry of preaching or teaching, but nonetheless, it is a ministry. Here's what I want us to see from the portion of Nehemiah's life that we're looking at today. If we are faithful to God, God will bring favor to the work that we do for him. It's not through our ability. He's not going to turn us into some kind of super people. We'll still be who we are. It's not through us. It is God working through us. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. We can do whatever God has called us to do through the strength that he gives us, not on our own. There are probably some people listening today who would say, well, the problem is I, I haven't been faithful. Nehemiah was faithful. The good news is that it's never too late to start. God is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace. He will forgive us if we come to him with a heart of repentance. And once your sins are forgiven, they're gone forever. Psalm 103 tells us, 103.12 tells us that when our sins are cast away, they are as far from the east as from the west. So wherever you are in your life right now, 
you can find God's favor for your life. Let me say that again. Wherever you are in your life right now, you can find favor, God's favor for your life. Maybe you have been and are still living a faithful life. If so, there is favor. Maybe you haven't been living a faithful life. In that case, then there is forgiveness, there is mercy, there is grace, and then there is favor. So no matter where you are, you can find favor with God. And I'll close with this. Let me speak for a moment as your pastor about High Point Church. Twenty twenty was a difficult year in a lot of ways, not just for us as individuals and as a church, but for the entire world. But I know that as a church, God is leading us forward, and together we are rebuilding. I know without a doubt that we are headed in the right direction. I know that just as he did when I became the pastor of High Point Church back in 2016, almost five years ago, God has given me a vision for where we need to go as a church going forward. We are seeing God do so many wonderful things, and we will see even more as we go forward. We can look around, especially today, and get discouraged by the task that lies before us. And we can look around and give up. But I will tell you that I know what God has given me. I know what God has shown me. And I will not give up. We will be victorious. I don't care what anyone says to the contrary. I don't care what anyone would do. If God says it, then I'm going to follow him. To those detractors and naysayers, let me paraphrase what Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 2.20. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will restart start rebuilding, and you have no claim or historic right to it. In other words, go away. As God gives us strength and wisdom, we will, as a church, accomplish what he has called us to do. Nehemiah could have never accomplished the things that needed to be done on his own. Neither can we. But through the strength that we find only in Christ, we can do all things. We will rebuild whatever is broken. It's not likely that it will look the same as it did even a year ago. In fact, I'm pretty sure it won't. But if we are following as God leads us, it will look exactly the way God wants it to look.
I'm sure when they get, got the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt, they didn't stand back and say, yeah, that looks just like they did before they knocked it down 130 years ago. Pretty sure that didn't happen. But you know what? It didn't matter. Because what they built, they did it exactly the way God said do it. They did it with what God supplied to them in order to accomplish it. And because of that, when they stood back and they looked at those walls, what they had to say was, that looks exactly the way God wants it to be. And that's what mattered. Could our words be like those of the Israelites in Nehemiah 2.18 where they said, let us start rebuilding. And could our resolve be to set our hands to this good work? So we will go forward. We won't look back. We will rebuild. And we will do it God's way. And we will do it for his glory. Nehemiah could not have gone back to Jerusalem no matter how much he was in the will of God, no matter how anointed he might have been, no matter how powerful his faith was at this point because of all that God had done and for all that God had provided. He could not have gone back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the walls himself. It would have been physically impossible. But when he got back, he looked around, he saw what needed to be done, and he told the people, we can do this. God working through us, we have found favor, and we will do this. And I stand here to tell you today, I cannot do it by myself. It would be impossible. But with the help of everyone at High Point Church, we can build High Point Church to the place that God wants it to be. Yes, it's been tough. It's been a tough year. And yes, we had some setbacks. But keep in mind, the people that Nehemiah was talking to the wall had been destroyed. They had been taken into Babylon for 70 years. And now another 50 years has passed. 130 years of 2020s have taken place. Because that was a pretty rough time for them too. And in spite of that, Nehemiah said, this is what we're going to do. This is what God told me. But it will take dedication. It will take faithfulness. It will take 100% effort. Picture for a moment as they rebuild, as they carried supplies in one hand in the weapon. They were ready to fight 
against whatever would come against them at any given time. There were half of the people were building, half of the people were armed. Everybody at High Point Church can't be up here preaching, can't be up here teaching, can't teach Sunday school. Everybody can't do everything. But one thing everybody can do is prayer. Pray a defense around High Point Church. Pray a defense around the leadership of High Point Church. Pray a defense. If you can't do, you can pray. But if we look back at the story of Nehemiah, we saw that everyone was doing something. Some were prepared to fight, and we need some folks that are prepared to fight in prayer. And the rest were willing to do. Dedication, commitment. Dedication to the task, commitment to the task. That's the only way that we will see this happen. I know that God has more things for High Point Church. I know where we were just about a year ago. And I know that God has more for us than even where we were a year ago. And it might look different. But if we're following in God's will, it will be exactly the way he wants it to look. And that's all that matters. But we can do this together. I'm not saying these things today to try to be a cheerleader and get everybody all fired up to go out here and just hoot and holler as we leave the building. That's not my point. More than anything, what I want us to do is to search our hearts and ask ourselves, are we really committed to the task that lies before us? I've, I've said before that we typically... We find a way, we find the resources, we find the time to do the things that we really want to do. Which means most of the time if we don't do things, it's because we really didn't want to do them. Could we commit, Lord, I will put you first in my life. If he's not first, He's not Lord at all. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Many, many times I've stood in this pulpit and I've said, everything we do should be viewed through the lens of Matthew 6.33. Everything we do. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, 
Would you stand this morning? If you have a need this morning, would like to come for prayer. If you want to come and pray, that's fine. You can pray right where you are as well. Would you do that this morning as we sing?